you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Man, I think this one's a first. What do you mean? We actually have a, a, an economist on the show that's, that's you know, more than my, my backyard economics, as I like to refer to it. Okay, okay. I, I, I thought you were going to say, oh, this is going to be another great one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, after you chirp me for my intros, I, I, I'm trying to change it up a little here. Yeah, because I was chirping you because like you sound like my wife, um, <laughs> where where, where she that? says where she says, um, "Oh, isn't this baby cute?" Every time and I'm like I'm like yeah, but there has to be some babies that aren't cute. So like right, and not all our guests. I don't know. Is that bad? Not all our guests yeah. are great. I don't know. Yeah. Well, usually I start with we're blessed because we have people actually willing to come talk to us, right? True, very true, very true. Okay, but this guest is a really good guest. <laughs> yes, we're we're definitely blessed, as I like to say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I had I had to do some um work, um some some behind the scenes uh detective work to trace her down, but we finally got her on the show. Thank you, thank you, Holly, for uh, joining us. Welcome, Holly Fretwell. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you guys. And we are as well. We are as well. We always enjoy these kind of conversations and trying to apply real world situations and and in a economic theological framework. So thank you for joining us. Uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with who you are and your work, uh, can you give them a background on yourself? Absolutely. I am the Vice President of Outreach at PERC, which is the Property and Environment Research Center. We are located in Bozeman, Montana, and we look to... Uh, the private sector to help us resolve environmental issues rather than relying on government to solve those problems. And we find that we have a lot of what we call envirepreneurs in the world or environmental entrepreneurs that really help us enhance our environmental quality and help increase conservation. Mm, okay. Okay. That, that, that's a lot. And so for people who don't know what PERC is, well, what is that an acronym for? PERC is the Property and Environment Research Center, and we are a conservation and research organization uh, looking really for private solutions to environmental problems. So for, like, I'm assuming anyone who's not, you know, more free market oriented, they might think that that doesn't make any sense. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, what are the, some of the biggest either misconceptions or, or, you know, mental hurdles you have to break down for people when, when you sort of start trying to navigate some of these things? It's, it's a great question. We are um, in our 41th year, 41th, 41st year this year. And uh, we have a book that we've written um, three editions of called Free Market Environmentalism. And the very first edition back in 1990, uh, one of the reviewers of that book said that free market environmentalism is an oxymoron and actually called the authors the morons. Um, so yes, we come up to, <laughs> with some um, <laughs> questions sometimes as to how markets and the environment work together. And I think people need to 
really think carefully about what the market can do for us and what motivates us. And my economics background really helps us think about um, our individual behavior and the choices we make. And the things that motivate us are really trying to do well for ourselves. And in the marketplace, to do well for ourselves, we have to do um, good for other people as well, right? We have to be producing some product or service that other people want and are willing to pay for. And that includes environmental quality and conservation. Okay. Okay. Well, now I was doing some research on you and I noticed that uh, you're a teacher who teaches teachers how to teach economics. So uh, what are some of the fundamental economic principles um, people should know and in, in why is this work that you do important? You know, I think the the first misnomer of economics is that it, it, it is about the study of choices, right? It's about human behavior. It's not just about finance and dollars and cents and stocks and bonds and that type of stuff. That's certainly a part of economics. Uh, but the, the real bottom line of economics and the economic way, way of thinking is really just about the study of choices. How do we make the different choices that we do? Why do we make those choices? And we always have to make choices because resources are scarce. Um, so we can't have everything. So we have to make a choice to do one thing or to spend our money on one thing or to spend our time on one thing. And that choice is a choice to not do something else. What did we choose not to do is also important. Um, so I, right off the bat, that is one of the most important concepts, I think, of, of economics for people to understand. And when we start to think about that, we can actually look at what people are doing, how they're behaving, and get a good understanding of why they're behaving the way they are because of the incentives that exist out there. So incentives are sometimes in the rewards that we get. Maybe it's what we get paid. Maybe it's a nice pat on the back. Um, maybe it's a, you know, a candy bar if you're a child. Um, and, and also the punishments, right? We respond to those punishments if we're going to get a, a ticket for driving too fast or um, if we're going to get hit in the head if we do something wrong, then we, we pay attention to that. And, and people actually do behave in, in somewhat predictable ways. And if we look at the what we call the rules of the game, that is, what are the, the laws, the customs, the moral principles, the property rights, and, and our cultural values, all those things influence our choices. And if we pay attention to all those things, we get a pretty good idea as to how people are going to behave um, in, in regards to our world around us. Mm -hmm. And okay, so like, I, I'm a teacher by trade. And so, well, first, before the teaching as a student, I never studied economics till like my fifth year um, of university. And now I look back in retrospect and I think about how helpful learning economics at an early age would have helped me um, figure out my way in the world. So like, for example, my background um, is, uh, is history. So I'm a historian. That's what I went to school for. But when I learned um, like principles of economics and so forth, uh, it, it made me a better historian because now I'm not just saying, okay, well, these guys did um, this. These guys did this because they're black. These guys did this because they're white. These guys did this because they're capitalists. These guys did this because they're communists. But now, you know, you're kind of you're able to kind of look at the many factors of influence, like artifacts within a culture that influence people's decision making. And so now, I want to help, um, you know, younger people, and even not just younger people, but even our audience, for our listeners. And this is why we do the show because it was like a light bulb moment for me where I was like, you know what? More people need to have um, the right vocabulary to articulate um, what we see 
um, in the economy. And that's what pe- people don't have the vocabulary. And that's where all the confusion is coming from. I, I think you're absolutely right there. And I, I, in addition to that, we need to think about how people respond sort of in the marketplace and how people respond um, as government actors. And that's a, a really hard one for people to understand. Because again, in the marketplace, when we go out and do things, we're really looking out for our best interest. We really sort of economize on, on how we're spending and, and what we're buying um, and how we're using our individual resources. And if you're in the government, you behave a little bit differently. If you're a government actor, then you're spending somebody else's money, right? Um, some people call this opium, other people's money, right? And it's, it's addictive. And, and that is because you're spending someone else's money and you don't have the same repercussions that you would if you're spending your own money. And so our government actors and, and government bureaucrats they behave very differently in the public sector than they do even themselves in the private sector. And when you think about the incentives that they have, whether it's spending money or whether it's it's the different actions that they're taking and policies that they're looking at and, and bills that they're proposing or voting on, they're really looking at how are they going to stay in office? What are the incentives for them to, um, to be there and how do they stay there? So they need to look at not just for voters and the constituents that they have there, but also for special interest groups, right? which interest groups are really powerful and are going to help fund them and on ideas that maybe a lot of those voters aren't going to pay any attention to. So we have, and I know you guys, I've heard you guys say this in your past podcasts, that we have this rational ignorance that exists out there. As voters, we pay attention to those things that are really important to us, and we don't pay attention to those things so that we don't have a, a very large stake in. And therefore, our politicians can move on issues that we might be entirely opposed to, but we're totally ignorant that they're even going on. But our politicians are certainly keyed into the uh, the um, additional votes that they're going to get and potentially the additional dollars that they're going to get for voting for these types of activities. So their behavior is very different. And I think that is one of the uh, biggest areas in, in economics that, that people really don't understand. And that is that we have this different human behavior that, that and as individuals will respond differently in the different sectors of our lives. Yeah, I think uh, the the key word that I think you said earlier that totally relates here is the idea of incentives. People fail to see how the the government, you know, official operates under very different incentives than they do in their day to day life. That's right. You know, I used to tell my students, if you learn nothing else in this class, I, I taught uh, intro, introductory economics and, and several upper level courses as well. But my entry level classes, I would tell them, if you learn nothing else in this class at all, other than that incentives matter, I will have been successful. You probably won't pass, but I will feel <laughs> successful. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, I, w- I was curious for, you know, for the listener who's, you know, not exposed to this incentive sort of way of thinking about things, um, you know, what would you say is a really good introduction, you know, whether it's a book or something? Uh, I know a lot of uh, people that I follow would sort of rec- probably recommend Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. I'm curious, you know, if, if that's something that you, if that's a book that you would recommend or if it's something, you know, maybe more obscure, like even the Tuttle Twin books or something. You know, but both of those are great options. But one of my absolute favorites is Naked Economics by Charles Whelan. It's a bit older now, but he actually goes through all the different um, are many different ideas of, of, of economics, both on the micro level and the macro level. And he just explains them with various different examples. It's not a whole lot of data and graphs or anything. It's just a lot of fun examples. The other one would be uh, Freakonomics with Michael Lovett, right? He, he does sort of the same thing in a much more flashy way than, um, than Whelan does. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're right there. Though they definitely start exposing the, to the idea of of incentives and how I mean, Freakonomics is a really good example of how this transpires in very obscure way, obscure ways to some extent. Yeah, ex- exactly. Now, I I, I think uh, there's. Uh, this statement I've heard so many times about economics that I feel just demonstrates ignorance. And, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm ignorant as of what people are really saying. But there's a, I've heard of this quote sort of like maybe more so from the, the socialist sort of MMT crowd maybe where it's like we need a new system of economics. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that statement. Is that demonstrating their ignorance of what economics really is um, or, or is, it, is there something deeper there? I would say it's it's a misunderstanding of what economics is because economics again if you look at the just the basic underlying ideas of economics it is choices how we make the choices we do and I don't know how you change that because those choices are based on incentives now if somebody says I want to change those incentives we can we can think about that and those incentives again are driven by these these rules of law the you know our customs and traditions and property rights and uh, regulations etc and we can we can change the incentives um, but economics is just how we respond to those incentives that exist. Uh, part of it well this show is uh, also a Christian show and we and we think theologically and so you're talking about you know decision making and making choices and and that's where you know us as Christians, because we work through a book that's giving us instruction, it's one of those things that you never really think about it, but as a Christian, you should have, or well, Christians should, or anybody that that is a religion of the book, of a book, um, uses the book to also help guide their decision-making. But sometimes people don't even take a step back to think like, wow, like why am I actually just doing this? And what are the implications of the decisions I'm making. Um, we also talk about like trade-offs and, and that was another um, economic principle that was helpful for me uh, to understand that um, we don't have an unlimited resource of <laughs> resources uh, per se. And so, and so it's very helpful to be able to um, look at the worldview of particular people. And so, okay, well, why do Muslims make the decisions that they make? Right. Well, they have an artifact. They have, they have a book, and the book helps guide the way they live. So, uh, Joel and I on a past episode we were talking about religion and politics as usual, and like we were making the distinction that um, for for the Muslim, um, religion and politics are not separate. Church and state is not separate. Right. Those are one and the same. So when they make the decisions that they're making, they're making it in light of the book that they have. And for the Christian. Um, uh, church, and, um, church and state is separate, and so we don't we don't mix the two. But yeah, um, I, I thought that was um, very helpful that you pointed out about decision making. Because mm-hmm. I think all of those fit within that that rule of law that we talk about. And again, when you're thinking about how people are behaving, people will behave differently because we have we have different incentives. We have different components within um, that structure. Uh, sometimes in, in economics, we call it the institutions. I think that's a, a hard name for you know it's, it's it's a name that most people don't understand what that means. It, no, no, we use it a lot. We use it a lot on this show, actually. It, it, as far as the institutions, because we talk about institutions as the rule of law. And um, you know, when I first start teaching class, people say, "Well, an institution." is like a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a firm, it's a business, it's a building. And like, no, actually the institutions are the rules of law, <laughs> all these things that fit within there. And 
those are the things that we use when we make our decisions. And I think that, that your point on the on trade-offs is super important because again, that's something that many people really don't understand that we have to make these trade-offs because resources are scarce. And government has to make those trade-offs as well. So we have to think about what, um, what those options are and how we're going to decide which option to choose. And we can do that in the marketplace where we can actually work with each other and negotiate and cooperate, or we can have government do that for us. And in that sense, government is sort of telling us what that choice is. And it's you get that decision rather than having the ability to, um, to choose for yourself. And maybe it's a, um, a, you know, a democracy. So you have, you know, 51 percent people deciding that that's what it's going to be. And you may or may not like that decision, but you're stuck with that decision when it's a government outcome versus in the marketplace when you can really make those decisions on your own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, like when we talk about um, religion and politics and we talk about um, limited resources and trade-offs and we talk about um, the way how God has created the world and there are limited resources. And so like, for example, when we talk about land and property, so like in episode 98, we discussed indigenous land rights. And then, so now we know that you study uh, public lands policy and property rights. So how would you, um, how are property rights established in, in, in the school of thought? That's, you know, that's a, a great question. And I'm going to take it, uh, back to sort of the roots of property rights first before we even try to get there. Because I think as individuals, we need to understand what is a property right, right? And, and a property right is just sort of the, the use rights, the restrictions of use, um, the limitations of use, uh, what, what, we, what we have the ability to do with resources and we're allowed to do with resources and what we're not allowed to do with those various different resources. And one of the most fundamental property rights that we have is to ourselves, right? That we are protected from other people harming us. and. That in 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 uh, America, um, Canada, the United States, we are fortunate that we have that right. Not all citizens of other countries have that right, and we are very very fortunate to have that right. But let's take that a little bit further and say, well, what? How does this re, How does this work with? resources then. And when we think about property rights, they're really fundamental for markets to function well. And I'm going to explain a couple of sort of the key characteristics of property rights so that markets can function well to help us really think about why property rights even matter. And I have what I call sort of the, the deal of property rights just because it helps us helps us think about what these key characteristics are. And that is that when we, when we own a resource, or whether it's land or you know, your bicycle or your car, um, you can define it. You know exactly what it is. Right? And if I own a piece of land, I can, I can find my property markers right? and, and define exactly what that is. And it's defendable. We have some form of enforcement to help us defend that. And that is we can actually exclude other people from using our property if we wish to do so, or we can allow them to use that property. Um, but also really important is that they are what I call appropriable, and that's the A in my deal of property rights, and that is that they're tradable. Like if I actually own something and I have secure rights to it, I can trade it with other people. I can lease it, I can give it away, I can sell it, I can do what I want with it, but I have that right to actually um, sell it off and, and, and exchange that property for something else if I wish to do so. And finally, the L is for liable. We need to be liable for the actions that we do and for harm done on other people, and that brings us sort of back to that first 
first point of, of the most fundamental property right is to ourselves and that other people don't have the right to harm us, nor do we have the right to harm other people. So with those key characteristics, we can actually see markets functioning really well. And when we're missing one of those key characteristics, or sometimes people call it the, the bundle of sticks, right? You have the, all these different sticks that are different um, rights or limitations on your property. If you have this good bundle, this strong bundle of clear property rights, then markets will function well. Well, when we come to things like the, the Indian Act, First Nations people don't have clear property rights, right? They don't have the ability, they don't actually own that property. They don't have the ability to sell or trade that property. And as a result, they don't have the same incentives to either to take care of that property or to think about how other people might value that property. They don't have the same ability to, to use that property as leverage when they're trying to, um, you know, maybe they want to start a business or something and they go to the bank, but they don't have title of that property, so they can't leverage the value of that property. So it really limits what they're able to do with that property. Um, taking this back even further to sort of answer the question that you actually asked me then is where do property rights come from? Yeah, they they evolve over time and sometimes they evolve over time in the sense of um, if, if things aren't scarce, we can, uh, you know, we can think about fisheries. If, you know, there's a few people out there and there's a whole bunch of fish, we can all go out and catch some fish and it's, it's not going to impact that, that fishery resource. But as they become more and more scarce, we start competing for the use of that resource. And then it becomes more important to actually define that property so that we're taking care of that resource. Um, so we can see sort of property rights evolve over time. But if we really look at it, one of the ways that we've defined property rights in the past is to steal it from other people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in, 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 in every country, somebody at some point in time has stolen property from somebody else. And when that becomes really difficult, you look at today's world and say, okay, well, maybe, you know, 100, 200, 500 years ago, whatever it was, we stole that property for somebody. Well, can you just give it back now? If you're giving it back and you're redistributing that property, are you now stealing it from somebody else? So it puts us in a pretty tight conundrum as to how to resolve that problem. Because as soon as you start taking property from one person or another without actually allowing for that market trade to take place, then you change the incentives as to how people are going to behave. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So wait, uh, I just wanted to uh, get some clarification. Like, So <laughs> for people uh, who are not proponents of the free market... Uh, wouldn't they, what would you say to one of your students who says, Hey, well, see, so there's where, uh, the free market fails because the free market allows for people to steal other people's land. Uh, I would not say that the free market allowed people to steal other people's land. I think that was a government choice. <laughs> when you mm -hmm. actually look at how the free market responds, you can let's back this up a minute and, and let's talk about we can talk about trade versus raid. Okay, when trade we actually have raid? trade versus raid, <laughs> okay. when we have property rights, <laughs> we trade. Right, I own something, I can enforce my right, I can defend my right, and I have the ability to trade it. And so you and I negotiate, and we have this voluntary trade, and it's a cooperative outcome. Right, we we decide whether we're going to make this trade or not. And as a result of that, it's a win-win deal, right? There are these gains from trade. There's these benefits from trade. Well, if, if it's cheaper for me to raid or I don't have clear property rights and so I don't have the ability to trade, then we might actually see people raiding and we might actually start to steal that property from other people because that is the lowest cost mechanism for us to get that property if that's what we desire. If we have clear property rights, 
that's not going to happen because we have that enforceability. Um, but again, that's not always true in the world. And so sometimes we come up to these positions where we're not sure how to take care of things. And sometimes it's raiding and we see war to get that property. Um, and sometimes we see uh, that negotiation. When it's a negotiation, it's cooperative. When it's a raid, it's a winner takes all solution. And, you know, one group wins, the other group loses. When, um, I know the what I was thinking about was sort of in some of the third world countries where you know it's by the stroke of a, a polit or a you know a political actor's pen that uh, they no longer have that property right. Um, and I'm wondering if you could speak to how that falls into the you know raid versus trade scenario. Right. I, I would say that's a raid scenario. The government mm -hmm. has decided we're going to raid. And I mean, we can think about um, Venezuela back in you know the the early 2000s would be an example of that, where the government decided that these large agricultural landowners uh, were too wealthy and they wanted to redistribute the land to, to lower income individuals and, and to, to split up the land into smaller um, agricultural farms. And the government wanted a bigger piece of this, so they redistributed it. They literally took the land from the, the larger landowners and handed this land out. And, and what happened is even those landowners that didn't get their land taken away suddenly changed their incentives because they weren't sure if they were going to have land in a year, five years, or 10 years from now. So they're no longer going to do some good conservation and agricultural production, they're going to get as much off this land as possibly can with the expectation that they're going to lose it at some point in time in the future. And so now we see this environmental degradation that's taking place. These new landowners that are able to take over this landscape, many of them had very little information about how to farm. They had very little money to actually invest in the farm. And most of the time, the government owned the land anyway, so they didn't have the incentive to be good landowners because they didn't know if they were going to have the land in the future. And what happened was we saw a huge decrease in productivity. Activity. And again, that's a that's a raid from government. There was there was no trade going on there. No, I, I think that's a, a really good point. And I think um, so much of the what you sort of spoke about has to do with incentives. And I think for so many people, they fail to see how the incentives of the government sort of, you know, raiding the property actually influences the incentives that were there beforehand. And I think, you know, your point there about how now the landowner is like, okay, how do I convert this to, you know, something that can't be stolen as quickly as possible? Um, and, and and so the where I was thinking about it wasn't necessarily the Venezuela scenario. I was thinking, and I think this relates, is, you know, a lot of the, the third world countries where they don't have a guarantee of property rights, we see a lack of economic development. Um, and, and my perspective is, well, why would I invest in my land to, to grow it if, if at some point in time I'm too successful, someone's going to be able to come along and take that? That's exactly right. And uh, Hernando de Soto has actually written a, a number of books, The Mystery of Capital is the, the title that comes to mind, um, actually looking at what happens when we don't have clear property rights to our land and what are the different incentives that exist there and, and how much investment do we get, do we get out of out of that that landscape when we really don't know if we're going to own it in the future. And, and the indications are pretty clear that people don't invest in the landscape and they don't oftentimes have the ability because, again, they don't have that capital um, through their ownership that they can actually take that to the bank as collateral so that they can get, you know, additional funding to, to expand on it. So there are a lot of limitations that come with that. Now, with respect to, um, you know, rights, my, my mind just for whatever reason, I mean, even though we're in Canada, I go to the concept of property rights and inalienable rights. 
but so much of today's conversation seems to be expanding this definition that is very, I would argue, muddy and, and lacks some sort of fundamental principles as to, well, what is a right and what isn't? Whereas inalienable rights, property rights to me are, are very sound sort of principled. Um, you know, so for, for the listener, how would you sort of lay out uh, what is a right versus, again, what I'm saying, where it seems like society or or some people within the, you know the political sphere are expanding. Oh, this is a right. You know, high speed internet is a right. Um, you know, it's it's expanding outside of any sort of principle uh, concept. I you know I I think that really is problematic. And and when it becomes when it becomes something for for you to have a right to something that I have to help pay for, it starts to take away from my rights. Mm-hmm. So we need to think about what are individual rights and. I think it's important that I don't have the right to harm any, somebody else, but I shouldn't have to help pay for somebody else to do something. And and that, you know, we can think about that from, you know, that there are certain government programs that help other individuals. And, and some people think those social programs are wonderful and other people's maybe not so much. There are a lot of people that um, help, um, help other people through charitable institutions and charitable foundations. Um, but the thought that, that government comes out and says, well, you have the right, I mean, let's just say, you know, you have the right to, um, everybody has the right to a Mercedes Benz. <laughs> well, who's going to pay for that? And suddenly that takes away my rights because now I have to help pay for that for somebody else. And so I think we need to think about sort of that reciprocity when we're talking about those rights. Are those rights that I can just make my choices for myself or am I asking for rights that are actually impacting somebody else and making somebody else pay for me? And that's where I sort of look at that um, at that bottom line as to what really is a right and what is what is not a right. What is maybe um, something that we something that we want? It's a desire. Um, it might help make our lives better. And maybe even we all agree that it would be good for everybody to have clean water. Um, but is that really an inalienable right, or is that just something that we'd like to see um, happen to so that more people can? live a, a better, more healthy life. Would you say uh, a good distinction then is sort of falling into the category of negative rights versus positive rights? Um, and, and the way I would think about it is negative sort of is is protecting me and, and preventing people versus the positive is sort of a claim to something that requires, as you sort of put it, cooperation or other people's input. I, I, I think that is, is, is exactly sort of where I'm going with that in the sense of um, I, I don't think we should have those positive rights that are actually impacting you know that one person has to pay for 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 another person. I don't think we, um, I don't think individuals have a right to claim part of somebody else's right. Yeah, no, that's that that that's deep. Because um, I guess I'm looking at it from, especially, you know, where you would some people would say, okay, well, is shouldn't we force people to help each other? Because if you don't force people, then pe- no one's going to help anybody, and then everybody suffers. Um, I, I disagree with that. I think that most people like to help other people because we find it beneficial and, and self-gratifying to help other people. And if you go back in time before we had government social programs that were helping people, we had a lot more fraternal programs and churches that people were members of that that helped each other. We had a lot more neighborly programs um, that helped each other. And if you imagine uh, going back without having these these government programs that are that are helping, you know, it, with, with, that are socially helping individuals and maybe we're giving people payouts and other things, 
it, it changes the incentives. If that's not there, suddenly I may not be a jerk to my neighbor because I might need my neighbor to help me out because government's <laughs> yeah. not going to, right? Or I yeah, might join yeah, yeah. a church or be a member of the Elks Club uh, because then I have a group of people that will actually help me out and I'm going to be willing to help them out because I want to make sure that I have that safety net as well. So it changes the behavior of people. And if you look over time, we've actually seen increasing government programs and decreasing memberships in our fraternal uh, societies and with our with our church and religious groups as well. I'm, I'm not saying that that is definitely a core uh, a causation, but there is a correlation there nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I usually refer to it as you know these these government programs and things like that have have changed the incentives such that we stop living in community or like i think about it even in my own neighborhood like how many of your neighbors do you actually know whereas and and obviously trying to compare to 100 years ago is a bit of apples to oranges but but we used to live in 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 community whereas today you know it's your community is wherever the group of people you decide to sort of you know drive to or or i guess in today's world zoom call with um but but the 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 locality of your community, while there's an aspect where that's good, I think um, the question that I always pose is how much is this due to the incentives where I don't I no longer am required to provide for my neighbor. I look at the bum on the street and go, well, there's a program for that guy, as opposed to thinking mm-hmm. of a personal responsibility piece. I, I think that's exactly right, and I think we would see more people actually reaching out to help each other with fewer government programs. Um, I. I don't think you're able to, at this point in time, especially given COVID, to, to pull some of those programs out from under people uh, because they rely on them at this point. And, um, and government has done a lot of things to put people out of work. And that situation in itself is, is a bit horrifying. Yeah, uh, Joel, Joel, you made a, a good point, uh, reminded me of, because you said, oh, you don't, you don't have to go back 100 years. But I think back to when I was a kid. In, in reference to um, knowing your neighbors. And right now, I don't really know my neighbors. Um, you know, shame on me. <laughs> but, but but when I was a kid, um, we knew our neighbors and it benefited us in the sense where um, my mom, single mom, she would like, she would leave us home by herself. And, you know, this was like you know, back in the day. So we're like, you know, I'm like, seven years old my sister's five but she would leave us home by herself and just tell the neighbors and be like hey uh just check in on darnell and 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 sonia or or she would just drop us off at our our neighbors um and and these are just and these are white people they're not black people right (laughs) so so it's white people and you know so even then alarms are going off because you're like oh man that's a recipe for molestation uh you know child abuse all this because living in the context we live today, we're like, oh man, what a terrible mom, right? <laughs> Darnell's mom's the worst, but, but that wasn't the case. I, I think it's a good example of what you were saying, Joel, about, um, and, 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 and you too as well, Holly, that, you know, you have to be reliant on your neighbors. So you got to befriend them. And, and then it also opens up, uh, trust. Yeah. And let's even, you know, I have a neighbor that, um, never used to shovel, you know, I live in Montana. It snows a lot. Neighbor never shoveled. And, you know, I had moved in that place into that house about four years ago. And the first year I just sort of let it go. Um, and the second year I shoveled occasionally. And this year I, I've just, you know, it's not that big of a deal for me to go out and shovel the walk for them. Um, and I kind of like having it shoveled. And so I went out there and started, you know, when I was out in the morning, if I had time, I would just shovel their walk. Well, guess what? They've started shoveling mine. <laughs> 
Hmm. And this is the first time I've ever, in the four years I've lived there, seen them shovel anything. But now they not only shovel their own walk, but when they're out there before me, they shovel mine. Yeah, I, I think that's, and we definitely feel your pain with that up here in, uh, can, as I, well, as of right now, I refer to it as Canada, but Canada. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, as far as shoveling snow, um, yo, shoveling snow is hard work, man. <laughs> it's hard work. It, it is. So. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. we have a, we have about you know I don't know I have about twenty feet of sidewalk and they have about twenty feet of sidewalk. It's you know unless it's really yeah, heavy yeah, snow. Yeah, it's yeah, not if it's packing snow, but you know, but, but, but that's how you know you really love your neighbor when, when you're shoveling their driveway, right? So so it's a lot. <laughs> but but it all came from I mean I rarely even talk to them. It all came from you know I just want this shovel that gets all icy. I walk my dogs, and before you know it, you know it's sort of a um, a neighborly thing to do, and they decided that you know, maybe they should be doing it back. That's good. But it, in light of, you know, you know, individuals uh, befriending each other and, and being reliant on each other, because, you know, we have uh, the state's intervention. And sometimes we, well, not sometimes, we're now in a place where uh, we can't imagine life without their intervention with government without government intervention but i but i think there, there's components where the government is helpful so like for example like back to the issue of of property rights so the micmac lobster dispute in nova scotia um, has been happening since uh, the 1700s so on one side you have the commercial fishermen who say that indigenous fishermen are threatening their livelihoods by trapping the crustaceans outside of the uh, federally regulated lobster season. And then on the other side, we have the indigenous fishermen uh, that trap to maintain a moderate, in quotes, moderate livelihood, which is um, outlined in the Peace and Friendly Treaty of 1752. So basically, um, these two groups have been warring um, for years um, over the seas to the point where um, you had some of the uh, commercial fishermen. I, I don't know if it was commercial fishermen, but somebody uh, burnt the place where they keep all where the indigenous people keep all their stock of um, of lobsters. Yeah, yeah, fishing. Uh, yeah, so basically oh. the 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 um, the place where they keep all of their uh, stock from everything they've caught and all the lobsters they that was burnt to the ground, and so the disputes, of course, you know. Um, became a, a major issue in, in the city. But I, I say all that to say that, you know, they're fighting over the season, fighting over the lobsters. But how do we apply and how is the how is this a case for tra uh, tragedy of the commons? Where is the tragedy in this? The, the, the tragedy is that, that we, we're missing property rights, right? If you go back to my deal of property rights, you're missing the excludability. These groups, neither one of these groups has the right to exclude the other group, and they're both concerned about uh, destroying the fishery because we're going to take too many, too many lobsters and too many fish, um, and and that is what the tragedy of the common is. It is the the lack of property rights when we have a scarce resource, and so everybody competes against each other to try to take that last fish or that last lobster, and there's no incentive for nobody to not take that last lobster, right? Because if I don't take it, somebody else is going to. I have no ability to exclude them. So the resolution comes in creating better property rights, and that is one of the areas that government is really important to help us, and I would say it is the, the key role for government is to help us define and defend and enforce our property rights. And 
sometimes that's really difficult to do. If we're looking at fisheries where fish swim, it's even more difficult than with lobster. I think the lobster problem comes um, from sort of these old traditional norms and from existing property rights or existing uh, what people think are rights, privileges to go catch those, those lobsters and that competing demand for those resources, right? We have these different groups that are competing for this scarce resource. And the government solution seems to be, you know, we're going to pick a winner and then the other person is a loser or the other group is a loser, rather than actually trying to better define those property rights. And that way we can actually allow for some cooperation to take place. And if we look at many of our fisheries, uh, our ocean fisheries, our commercial fisheries, uh, we have tragedy of the commons that have just caused major collapse of our fisheries over time. And now we have a number of different countries that are using what we call individual tradable code quotas or catch shares sometimes. And, and what that is, is government actually comes in and says, okay, there's a certain amount of this fish or these lobsters that we can catch. And that's going to be what we call our total allowable catch. And we can catch so many fish, but we want to make sure that we have some measure of what the, the total population is in the ocean. And we want to know how many we have to leave in the ocean so that it's sustainable. So once we have that total number of fish in the, in the ocean, and we know how many we have to leave there, then we can actually act, calculate out that total allowable catch. And then we divide that, what we call a tack, up amongst the different fishers in that fishery. And it's typically done on a historical catch basis and on a percentage basis. So if I historically caught 10% of those lobster, then I would now have the right to catch 10% of that total allowable catch. Suddenly my incentives have changed. We can exclude other people, only those folks that, that have one of these catch shares or quota can actually go out and, and fish. And we, we can only catch a certain amount, but if that population grows, which presumably it will if we've measured the sustainable population well enough, then my 10% is still 10%, but the, the weight or the number of fish I can catch there will increase as that as that, as that tack increases. And so suddenly I have the, the motivation to only catch a certain amount and to help monitor other people to make sure that they're not overfishing out there. And then we also have the, the tradable component. So if I am not the lowest cost fisher, then I can actually sell that to somebody else that can be more efficient to go out and catch those fish or those lobsters. So this whole problem that we see is a property, ba property rights based problem. Now, would you say that that the solution you described is is trying to mimic property rights. So, like, because I think about, well, essentially, we still have an unowned property, and rather than, because uh, arguably this wouldn't or can't happen in the way that governments operate, which is, you know, uh, a private enterprise or a private individual coming and buying the 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 land or the the let's say the ocean space. Um, you know, because I think about it, well, they if, if it was a single owner, they would potentially just, you know, charge people a fee to come in and fish and they would have an incentive to maintain the, uh, you know, population of fish so that next year they can get income again the following year. Um, yep. And so we're, we're what you're describing is a way for uh, commonly owned property to try to mimic the free market. Would you say that's a proper classification? Uh, yep. A actually, what, what the what the tradable quotas are is a cap and trade program. 
basically we have this, this resource that is hard to keep contained. I mean, lobsters might be easier because they don't move quite as much as fish do. Um, but let's just say we have this, this resource that's really hard to contain, it moves around. Um, how do we put a property right on that? And so government has basically come in and said, okay, well, we're going to put some cap on the max amount that people can catch and we're going to give each person an actual property right in that amount of fish and allow for that trade to take place. So the cap is that government's come in and said, this is the max amount um, that you can catch, and here's how we're gonna allocate that amount of catch to the different individuals. Now, the market part of that is you're allowed to actually go out and, and trade that different quota so that we can have a more efficient uh, marketplace and, and be more efficiently producing um, our fish or lobsters. I'm curious if you uh, can speak to um, sort of a similar problem just with, with waterways in general and property rights. Because I think for, for many people, I think of the example of like a river and, you know, let's say, you know, it might be a bit of an older school or like a, a centuries ago example, but, you know, multiple tribes, for example, having access to the waterway. Um, and and how does, you know, something like that, which is a similar scenario, but but tragedy of the commons also applies here where, you know, if one person halfway up the river blocks off the river, they've just, you know, hindered everybody else. Yep. And again, so let's just say we, we've hit this point in time where there's too many people competing for the, the use of the of the river um, or of the water. And so we're, uh, we need to have, so we have a tragedy of the commons. We're overusing it. So we need to have some allocation system. And in, in the Western United States, as well as in much of Canada, uh, we have what we call the prior appropriations water law. And that is the first people that came to use that water are the ones that have the first and right. Um, again, it may not be the very first people, but it's, you know, as far as when the government decided to <laughs> make this determination might have been stolen from somebody in, in, in the first place. So I, I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't want to um, say that this is the perfect system by any means. But nonetheless, the, the prior appropriation said the first person to um, the water that's actually using the water has the rights to use the amount of water that they were using. So the next person that comes along only has rights to how much they're using and how much is left and so forth. Um, so eventually we get all this water allocated out to different individuals. And if we've based that water right on a really high water year, um, and suddenly we have a low water year, the person that came to that water and used that water last may get no water whatsoever because they have um, that what we call a junior right instead of that senior right. And so if all that water is used up, there's nothing left for them. There were a couple of problems with this system. We still follow the system, but we've had a lot of tweaks to it over the, over the years that, that are super beneficial. Um, so the original right is a use it or lose it right. And if you don't use the water that you have claimed, then you will lose that forever and somebody else can then use it. Um, so you have absolutely no incentive to conserve that water. The other problem has been that beneficial use was considered using it and pulling it out of stream, and it wasn't considered beneficial use if you left it in stream. So the fish had no rights, and people that liked fish had no rights, and people that wanted to recreate had no rights. So over time, we've actually created water markets, and to allow water markets, we have to have that deal of property rights. We have to make sure that it's enforceable, um, it's excludable, it's it's uh, appropriable, that it's, it's tradable, right, and, and that we're liable. And what's happened with water markets is we've changed the law in, in most states and in many areas, but again, not all, to both allow for beneficial use being an inflow use and allowing people like uh, water trusts and, and um, others to actually buy the right to leave the water in stream. So we now have in Montana and, and in, in say Oregon, we have water trusts that can actually go out to farmers and say, you know, 
we have a drought year, we don't want to have a dry stream, we don't want to lose the spawning habitat here, can we pay you to leave a certain amount of water in stream? Or can we actually provide hay for your cattle so that you don't have to grow it and you don't have to irrigate so that we can leave that water in stream? And again, by defining those property rights, we've created a marketplace that's very effective at, at moving water around to those higher valued uses. It's certainly not perfect. It's got a lot of problems still. Uh, transaction costs are high, as you can imagine, when we're trading water, because it's not just a simple, you know, I have a gallon of water and I'm gonna trade it with you, right? I'm pulling yeah. water out of stream, I'm irrigating my field, some of that water is going back in stream that somebody else gets to use. So we have to make sure when we do these water trades, we're not impacting downstream users because we've changed the uses upstream. Yeah, I mean, I think tragedy of the commons is something that uh, is, is largely, um, not understood. And, and I mean, I think, you know, you're laying out a really good example where we try to bring in, uh, you know, market. And, and I think the keyword, um, I think I've heard you say on, on a different podcast, the idea of, of bringing cooperation between people, right? So the example you gave about, you know, with the hay, hey, I, I can produce hay at a, a much more efficient or, or with, let's say, uh, in, a, in a more abundant water resource area and, and sort of making a trade in order to, to fix this problem as opposed to, you know, free for all, every, you know, last man to the hole loses kind of thing. That, that's right. And, and when we think about those trades, it is, you know, it's voluntary, it's cooperative, we're negotiating with each other. And again, typically, when we get that government solution, the government comes in and makes a decision and says, okay, here's what it's going to be. The, you know, the fish get the water, the farmer doesn't, or maybe it's the other way around, the farmer gets the water, the fish don't. And it's, it's a winner takes all. And as a result of that, it's this coercive conflict creating solution rather than encouraging that cooperation that we really want to see. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I like to say to the, with, you know, I'll, I'll bucket this sort of under a regulation. I sort of like to say, even if that regulation or decision was right for that one time, the problem is the amount of time it takes to change that decision when it's no longer the right allocation uh, usually is five years too late. Um, and, and so I think what you're describing where we don't have the government just setting the standard and, and walking away, you know, there's sort of a, a agile or, um, you know, a system that can, can adjust accordingly because there's, you know, market actors allowed to actually trade as opposed to, nope, you're not allowed to, yeah. as you said, the use it or lose it sort of example. You know, and that's a great point because markets are, are driven by our choices, right? Coming back to the very beginning here, our choices and how we behave and what we decide we want to purchase and how much we're willing to pay for it. And so in aggregate, all of us as consumers are constantly providing that information to the marketplace. And so it's constantly changing. It's constantly thinking differently um, about how, you know, what price is going to be charged for certain different things. And, and, and as scarcity increases, we see those prices increase because we're competing against each other to try to get that resource. Um, and sort of an interesting concept to, to sort of move even beyond that is when we talk about resources, it's not even necessarily the resource that we want, right? When we think about oil and gas and um, coal, um, it's not the resource that we want so much as what it does for us. Right? Mm -hmm. We want the energy. Um, so when we see those resource prices get really high because maybe we have some, um, some shortage of, of, of 
oil and gas for some for some reason. We've seen many 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 times that we've had these high prices and in, in supply decreases over time with with oil and gas. And when that happens, suddenly we go, oh, well, what else can we use? And um, how can we start conserving that? And so then we see that price start to drop, and we see that movement or that evolution into using other resources, the substitute resources, or not using as much for um, becoming more efficient in, in how we use it. Um, and the markets respond to that really well, but but uh, once we have regulations and rules, they don't respond to that very well. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. Um, the the part of it that I thought you know that relates, but sort of a sidebar, is as you were talking about you know the scarcity of a particular resource driving that price up. Um, I think I think about how I, I use the term sort of that scarcity drives innovation. And, you know, whether it be, let's say, climate change with respect to carbon or other, you know, government mechanisms with regards to, um, let's say, even green other green energies, there's sort of this desire to manipulate price in order to drive innovation uh, as opposed to allowing the scarcity to do that. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on you know, government's attempts and how, you know, successful or... or not successful, those ten things tend to be. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, that scarcity does drive innovation and it does it does impact price, and that's why it drives innovation. And when government comes in and tries to do that, government doesn't have all the information, right? No one person has all this information that, that's being fed into the marketplace that's directing where mm -hmm. this price is going to go and that's influencing those different prices. And we can pretend that we think we have that information, but as we said, it changes all the time. So even if we had it at one moment in time, we had these amazing computers that could calculate it all, it's constantly changing. And no one person has all that information to, to see how that's working. One thing we do see, like when we're thinking about carbon emissions and other things, is that we actually have businesses that pay attention to this. And it's not just the, the scarcity itself that's driving the innovation, it's also the reputation. And what do I need to do to make sure that I am ahead of the game and that I am producing what it is that my consumers want and that I'm, I'm demonstrating to them that I'm doing a good job of it. And if you go back 50 and 100 years in, 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 in our, you know, in the United States and, and Canada and other developed countries, um, you see that we used to pollute a lot more than we pollute now. And over time, we've gotten wealthier and suddenly we've started to have better information about, about how that might have, uh, pollution might have health impacts and we have more money that we can spend mm -hmm. on environmental quality and enhancing our environment and enhancing conservation. And so we see this gradual improvement in our environmental quality over time um, because we have that, that prosperity. And part of that is businesses responding to us as individuals saying, oh, you know what? I better not be dumping that um, into the creek anymore because people don't like that and they're not going to buy my product anymore. And so we actually see carbon emissions reducing. We have a, a, just a, a whole bunch of companies out there right now that are trying to become um, uh, net zero carbon emitters by 2040 and 2050, right? And they're putting a lot of um, money an investment into getting there um, because they think that's best mm -hmm. for their bottom line. I, I thought that, that was an excellent point about uh, being environmentally friendly, but that's flowing out of prosperity. Because yeah, historically, yes, we were polluting a lot and we didn't have a lot of knowledge on it. Uh, do you sometimes think um, in regards to where the way we approach climate change now, uh, we kind of take um, um, a first world uh, first world problems approach in a sense that we're like, okay, well, third world countries or whatever the case may be, 
they should be like us and we should, um, in a sense, guilt trip them into um, being environmentally friendly. Do you, do you kind of get that feel like there's a, a snobbery going on? I very much so. And, and it's, it's very problematic because when we start to think about some of the uh, regulations and restrictions to curtail carbon emissions and what we can do in this country and how that might impact um, other developing countries, it's going to cost them a lot. And what, what might actually happen as an unintended consequence of this is increased environmental degradation there instead of decreasing that environmental degradation. And again, that's because we want to make sure that people are prosperous. It is that increasing wealth and that increasing well-being that's helping us invest in the environment and invest in environmental quality. And we actually have what's called the environmental Kuznets curve, which is a, um, an upside down U, if you can imagine that. And as we, um, as we increase our income, which goes up along the, um, the, the top side or the, the vertical part of this graph, you see that we actually, at first, when we're starting from really low income and poverty level, we first start to increase our environmental degradation because we're suddenly going through that industrial revolution. And as we get wealthier and wealthier, we start to see that slowly um, sort of turn the corner to what we call the tipping point, which would be the top of that inverted U. Um, and then we start seeing a decrease in that environmental degradation. And the whole point is that as we get wealthier, we see this in over time, over history with, with, with uh, um, developed countries. We see it, um, it within developing countries and, and watching that, that tipping point that as we become wealthier, we start to see that um, decrease in environmental degradation. And the same thing is happening with carbon emissions. Um, we, have that, we have that turning point that, that exists there. And if we don't allow these countries to become wealthy enough, they won't hit that turning point um, and we'll continue to see that environmental degradation instead of actually getting them to a point uh, where they can afford to invest in enhancing the environment. Um, but at, at the point right now, we often see these countries, people are struggling just to feed themselves and to shelter themselves and their families. Um, they don't have the finances necessary to invest in environmental quality. And if we want to let them get there, we need to ensure that we're helping them increase their wealth and prosperity. I, I think, you, you know, you've touched on something that I, I've said a few times on our show that I think there's this um, ignorant or, or historical ignorance, especially, you know, for, for, you know, first world countries where I think it's something like up until a hundred, like, hundred years ago, like 95% of the population lived at a, you know, daily sustenance level. Um, and, and I think about the, what you're saying about with regards to the third world countries that, you know, environmental degradation becomes m more of an issue when they reach prosperity. But I was thinking about it in the sense of when I no longer have to worry about eating tomorrow, I can start thinking on a longer time scale. That's exactly right. If we're worried about eating tomorrow, we're not really worried about what's going in our river. If we're worried about where we're gonna get the water and, and how we're going to um, just feed our families, we don't have a lot to invest in, in other things. Yes, now we talked about, uh, in episode 55, we talked about behavioral economics uh, of climate change and climate change alarmism. <clears throat> so like many people believe that promotes, uh, that proponents of the free market uh, don't care about the environment. Uh, can you talk about your work as an entre um, in the enviropreneurs and how it differs from political environmentalism? Yeah, I mean, just coming 
back to some of the issues that we've already talked about, when we talk about envirepreneurs or environmental entrepreneurs, they really are these individuals that are looking to um, to make to make money or at least to to not be relying on government um, to enhance environmental quality, and they're responding to other people in the community because again, if you're if you're in business, you have to respond to your consumers or you're going to go out of business. So you're responding to those people that are directly um, around you that are in interested in, in purchasing your product. Um, political environmentalism, on the other hand, is saying, well, I'm just going to rely on government. So um, I think we have a problem. I'm going to go to government and have government solve that problem for me. So we, um, you know, people think we need to reduce carbon emissions. So we're going to go to government and have government tell us how to reduce carbon emissions. Um, but again, that comes down to who's who's going to be at the table. So so let me come back to the the fisheries and the cap and trade program because we have uh, fisheries that's a very successful cap and trade program. We've actually had um, utilities for sulfur um, dioxide, nitrous oxide that have had very effective cap and trade programs um, where, where government has actually determined what the cap is and the emissions that are allowed. These are all very homogeneous um, emissions or homogeneous products. The fishery we're we're talking about a very specific fishery. Um, you know nitrous oxide. We're talking about a, a utility that is, is like very similar to all the other utilities and they act very much the same. So let's th think then about, well, what about carbon? Well, who, who are we capping? How much are we capping? Who's going to be at the table? And suddenly you realize that we have all these special interest groups that are what, you know, in economics we call rent seeking, that are going to government and lobbying government to try to make sure that either they're making money out of this deal or they're not getting hurt any worse than they already might think they are. And so we have this, um, this, this game of special interests trying to influence government. Now, these government is people, right? And these government actors, how are they going to respond? They're going to pay attention to those people at the table because those are the people that are both funding them and, and, and providing them with votes, while those of us rational, ignorant you know, voters may not pay any attention to it at all. Um, so at the end of the day, once again, we have winners and losers, whereas when we allow the markets to do this, um, we're, we're looking at that cooperative result. We have the market to do it. The businesses are saying, guess what? People don't want us to continue to emit carbon, so we're going to do something about that. And we're going to change the way we produce things, and that price is going to be reflected in our product, and people are going to pay for that because they can afford to and they want to see those reduced emissions. So we can dictate what's happening, and we might have some unintended consequences from that because who's to say that that actually is going to um, reduce those carbon emissions depending upon who's at the table and what our politicians decide to, to, to do for that policy change. Or we can, in the marketplace, allow it to happen naturally and continue to respond to those changing to that changing information through those changing mm -hmm. prices. So uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, the term rent seeking, how would you define it? Rent seeking is really favor seeking. It's like if, if I have a, a there's a policy that's coming up or a law that's coming up that I think is really going to hurt my business, then I'm going to go to my policymakers and try to get them to not instigate that law. Or alternatively, maybe there's something coming up that will really help me and give me a, um, a benefit over other businesses. Then I'm going to go to my to my policymakers and, and really try to encourage them to do that. So most of us call them lobbyists, um, but it really is just seeking favors from our politicians and trying to get those laws and that legislation passed so that it will um, have a favorable impact on us as individuals. And we're all special interests or have a special interest in one right. way, shape or another. Right. Um, but some some groups are willing to spend a lot more money to try to influence their <laughs> right, politicians right, than right, others. Right. Well, would you say that's like public choice theory? 
Absolutely. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's a part of economics that, that most people don't understand. It's, uh, you know, we call it political economy or public choice theory. Um, and just, you know, sort of a, a side note, the, the Property and Environment Research Center, PERC, where I work, when we were started 41 years ago, we were actually called the Political Economy Research Center. So why did you guys Center. change from that term? Uh, because our focus really, yeah, our focus is really on environmental issues. And people didn't understand that we were really looking at, at the environment. And um, as we started to sort of develop our ideas, this is long before I was at PERC, but as we started to develop our ideas, we realized that, that the ultimate framework that we needed to be looking at for markets to function well in the environment or anywhere was looking at the property rights and looking at those key characteristics of property rights. And so the Property and Environment Research Center is just a much better description of what we do. But that political economy is still really important in the work that we do. Uh, I was wondering if you could um, speak to the, the idea of unintended consequence and really, you know, for the listener who's sort of ignorant as to the, the way the government sort of even picks winners or, or tries to, you know, and, and maybe whether it's in the environmental example or not, um, you know, where the government comes in and sort of sets things to, you know, under a certain motivation, sets things to be a certain way, uh, how the unintended consequences um, play a factor in that, you know where the the market scenarios that we've or, or market like scenarios we've described uh, don't can respond better to those unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. One um, that that comes to mind is our, our um, automobile fuel efficiency standards. And um, I don't know what the standards are in, in Canada, but in the United States, we continue to require our um, our autos to be more fuel efficient. And one of the things that we've learned when we look at the data as we become more fuel efficient, um, for one thing, our cars become much lighter. And if you sort of ignore the new safety factors that have gone in, they've, they've also become uh, much less safe as a result of that. Um, but the one that was really sort of just popped into my mind when you asked that um, was that we've also seen people drive a lot further and they're actually using more gas instead of less gas because it costs less per mile to drive. So that would be an unintended consequence. You know, what we wanted was to try to reduce our use of, 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 of gas and, and to become, you know, to, to conserve more gas. And as a result of our fuel efficiency standards, we've actually started to increase our fuel consumption. Yeah, I, I've listened to, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, Eric Peters, who's been on Tom Wood's show a bunch. He just annihilates a lot of the uh, auto standards. And I think <laughs> the point you make about, you know, we by by trying to make the cars lighter to achieve the efficiency, you know, you end up with arguably, you know, destruction, you know, death mobiles on the road because they're just, they could be a lot safer if they were allowed to be heavier, but then the fuel efficiencies would sort of be out, out of alignment. Yeah. So, so another one, I mean, if you really wanted to get more, uh, if you really wanted people to drive safer, um, I think it was Peltzman, an economist actually came up with this idea. If you really wanted people to drive safer, you would put, um, less and less safety standards in there. And you might even have a spike in the <laughs> steering wheel, right? Because the more safe, the, the more safe you feel, um, the, the more negligent you are, right? I don't know if you guys are skiers, but um, when I grew up, I never wore a helmet skiing. That just, you just didn't do that. Um, and, and as my kids, you know, as I had kids and they were growing up and I made them wear a helmet, so therefore I had to wear a helmet. Um, I ski much more, um, uh, much less safe. Let's just put it that way. I, I've actually hit my head on trees a number of times with a helmet. I was never close to trees before I put a helmet on, but I feel safer, right? And so it's this false sense of safety that exists out there, um, which again, might be an unintended consequence of, of wearing a helmet that because I feel safer, I am probably um, much less safe in my skiing. No, I, I think that's really good. Uh, I know that 
this might be controversial to some of the audience, but I know there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of economic analysis around seatbelts sort of having uh, unintended consequences there when they made it mandatory. People drove less safe, and actually, it caused an increase in pedestrian death. Yes. <laughs> oh wow! And, I didn't and know so, that. I mean, unintended consequences. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a. I mean. Most people just think, oh, seatbelts, of course, it's better, you know, on, on, on net. But the point that she made about wearing a helmet skiing, technically, if you feel safer in your car, now you're more likely to drive reckless. Yep. Um, the, the unintended consequence um, undoes some of the intended consequence, not to say that it totally outdoes it all the time. Um, but so, sometimes unexpectedly. And, and these, some of these, um, these types of stories are, are in Freakonomics, and they're just, they're really fun to read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, Darnell mentioned it briefly when he was in, you know, talking about our episode 55, the concept of, of behavioral economics, uh, I've, I'm, I'm very critical of sort of the, what I perceive to be sort of the foundations of it. I think a lot of the conclusions, you know, m- much in line with, with Freakonomics to some extent, a lot of the conclusions I wouldn't necessarily disagree with, but, but the idea of behavioral economics to me seems on the foundation that you have irrational actors and and to me that the way that that's articulated sort of is highly ignorant of subjective value theory as well as what it really means to be irrational i think it's articulating irrationality to be oh a decision i think is a bad decision as opposed to i always like to say something silly like an irrational thought is i'm hungry so i went and took a dump as opposed to you know a, a rational thought being um a very uh a means to an end and it's intentional even though an outsider might say well that was a bad idea yeah you know i think there's there's great places for for behavioral economics but when it comes to rational and irrational people generally behave rationally given the information that they have, the knowledge they have, the perspective they have. And what we do find is that when we look at the in, in aggregate, we can predict pretty well how people are going to behave if we have a good understanding of what their institutions are, right? If we have a good understanding of that rule of law. Um, and that actually helps us understand um, sort of the, the way that the world works in general. I mean, we go back into economics and look at supply and demand and people say, well, people are irrational that you know, supply and demand doesn't work. But we use these models and they ha- they're pretty predictive models at least at the microeconomics level. And so rational or irrational, depending upon how you want to define it, our models do assume rational behavior. And whether whether it is rational behavior or not, our models provide some pretty predictive um, uh, pretty predictive behavior models that we have. So um, I would say they are fairly useful. At, again, at least at the micro level, at the, the, the macroeconomics level, I don't think we've got it figured out very well. No, I, I think that's a. I, I think macroeconomics. I, I, I'm very, uh, you know, prone to sort of the Austrian school, which sort of says macro is just the aggregate of the micro. Um, it- it's funny because I actually taught macro for a number of years, and that's exactly how I taught it. And the, and the reason that our macro models, you know, when you actually look at the aggregate of the macro model, is not very good because you can change any one of those little micro models, and it's going to change the outcome when you when you look at the total macro aggregate. So you have to get all those pieces right, and we may not know how all and, those and pieces sorry, are coming out. I'm for me because I get the two confused. So uh, how would I make a distinction between the macro and the micro? 
So the, the microeconomic model is really looking at individual behavior, consumer and, and producer behavior um, as you know, an individual firm, um, an individual supplier. Um, and the macro is looking at the entire economy. So we're looking at, at, at you know, GDP and, and unemployment and um, inflation levels and things oh, that are overriding okay. sort of everybody in the economy. And so when we want to know, are we going to have inflation? Are we going to have a change in interest rates? Um, are we going to have increased unemployment? We can look at all sorts of different parts of the micro level and put those together to try to aggregate some sort of ideas to what the macro level is going to look like. But when we have changes, you know, we have one change in, in, in supply in one area and um, the Fed decides to change interest rates in another area and we don't know exactly which direction these are going to go um, or how large those changes are, it's going to have a, an impact on that final macro outcome that we're trying to predict. And so our macroeconomic models are not very good predictors if we don't have really good insights as to what's happening um, at all the different microeconomic levels. Uh, it's so funny. I remember oh, this is like, uh, it's funny. I can't even uh, to say that this was a decade ago being in, in macro class feels weird for me. I'm, I, I'm, you know, I know I'm relatively young. So you're but, a youngster. Yeah. I'm, well, it's like, I mean, recently I, I'm like, oh my goodness, high school was half my life ago. You know, those type of comments, I start to feel old, even though, you know, in, in, in retrospect, to some extent, I'm not really that old. Um, but I, I think about macro, there was always this um, I think I, I want to, I might screw it up, but the GDP sort of formula, the, the ISM or, or CSI, I don't remember what it is, but I always remember the part of it that, that made me very not confident in macro in general was this idea that around the net effect of GDP, when you increase government spending and then essentially paid back the debt, there was this ambiguous outcome. Well, maybe GDP went up in the net or maybe it went down, um, and, and I always, that, that particular example, I know it's sort of a one-off or, or one simple scenario, but that example to me always made me very skeptical of, of macro in general. And, and I think you're right to be skeptical for exactly that reason, right? Because we, we don't know what some of those outcomes are, yet we try to use those to direct um, policy and to, uh, you know, decide whether we're going to um, change interest rates and other things, things that, that the market in itself um, could do on its own. But instead, we have some government actors that, that have this idea that we have a better, we have better information and we know better what society should, should want. And therefore, they try to tweak that and change it around. Um, and those results aren't always good for us. Yeah, no, I, I think, uh, and, and earlier you sort of mentioned the idea of even if we had all these formulas, um, or, or sorry, computers running models um, that, that at the end of the day, there's just imperfect information. Uh, it, when you were talking about that, it reminded me sort of, of of Ludwig von Mises' sort of economic calculation problem that he proposed to, to the socialist, that he essentially said, let's assume all of these things. Let's assume you can do all the math. Let's assume you have the best computers. And, and you're still left with imperfect information and you need sort of the the prices through the market to to dictate the change in information well i was just gonna say that you know that's super true and, and we have different feedback effects that come through as well right um that one thing is going to cause another thing that causes another thing and sometimes it's going to go one direction and sometimes it's going to go the other direction and we just don't have good enough information to know how that's going to, to actually work out to be able to feed the proper information into our computer systems. Yeah, that, that's, that, yeah, I, I, I just, I think, 
you know, there's such a high level of economic ignorance. And, and I don't mean that in a degrading sense. It just the, you know, it's economics is t- referred to as the dismal science or, you know, it, there's just, I think the, the motivation that politicians put forward, like, okay, we're going to do this. They speak with such confidence that, that people that don't understand economics go, okay, well, I guess they know what they're doing. Um, and, and fail to sort of see that there's, there's so many factors at play that no one individual can always make the right decision. That's right. And, and did you know that the reason it's called the dismal science really isn't for the reason that many students of economics think it is. <laughs> it's actually called the dismal science because when you go back in history and look at um, our economists 100, 200 years ago, um, such, people such as Malthus, they actually had these, these just awful predictions that we were all going to die. We were all going to starve. And if you actually, you know, looked at how much food we had and the increase in, in our ability to grow food and the increase in our population, we were all going to starve, um, you know, within the next 50 years. And this is, you know, 150 years ago, um, 200 years ago. That didn't actually happen. So one of the things we, we, we should be thinking about economics, not as the dismal science, but more maybe more as the, as the optimistic science. And that is because what's really happened is as population growth has increased, we have actually come up with these great new innovations and new ideas and new technologies and new ways to grow more food. And we've always stayed ahead of that curve. Um, and uh, as uh, Julian Simon, uh, um, uh, an economist that has has passed, um, used to call it that humans are actually um, the ultimate resource. We are the best resource that exists out there. Population is not a problem. What we want is more people, more smart people to help us solve some of these problems and ha- help us live better and better lives. And, and in, in our lives t- uh, lifetimes and what we've seen from history, we we continue to see this great increase in prosperity and well-being. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned uh, the 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 or Joel mentioned the dismal science, and when I started, you know, studying economics, I realized that it was doing the opposite of dismal, and actually, it was giving me a hope um, in actual answers to real-world problems. And I, I'm the kind of person I really hate complaining. I I, I really hate complainers, um, and that makes life difficult for my wife. <laughs> so I'm just like, look, look, like there's a time to complain, but then we have to fix the problem, like solutions, 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 solutions. And 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 pointing back to um, me talking about like the Christ, a Christian perspective and using theology. So like in Genesis chapter one. Uh, verse uh, 20, 28, I believe, 28, and it, 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 sorry, 26 to 28, and it talks about God's first command to all men, not just Christians, but to all people, and the command is to use his creation for um, human flourishing and people's benefit, and so pointing back to the trade-offs and, and limited resources, people have to be wise in the way they use uh, God's creation to promote human flourishing. And that, to me, that pointed me, that opened me up for economics in the sense of making decisions and making efficient decisions and and using things to help other people. Uh, And and like Joel said, like um, scarcity um, brings about innovation. And so that was my connection in regards to seeing economics as a, as something that I want to continue to study and get better at. 
Mm-hmm. And, and when, you, when you think about it, it's the economics, it's the, it's the markets, right? It's the free marketplace that's actually motivating these efficient decisions and helping us cooperate with each other so that we can trade instead of raid. Uh, if we look at those political systems and the, and the heavy-handed oppressive types of governments, we don't get that. We don't, we don't get that same type of cooperation across the entire community. We might get um, you know, individuals that are cooperating with each other because they have to, but we don't have that overall aggregate co- cooperation like we do um, in Canada and the United States. Uh, I wanted to, uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask, you sort of touched on, um, you know, some, some way back historical economic thought. Um, and, and when I was in school, I actually took history of economic thought and, and my prof spoke about, you know, there's less and less professors that are teaching that course. And as the current sort of, uh, crop of professors start to retire, this history of economic thought as a course was seeming to fall away to the wayside. Um, and, and I think, you know, your point about sort of the, the origination of that term dismal science, and I, I took it to some extent, and this might not have been totally what you meant, but some of the, the high level of ignorance or errors that were made in economic thought is good to know that we've developed away from them as opposed to re- repeating them. And, and some of them even, you know, even in Adam Smith with regards to the father of economics, his his idea of, you know, he didn't have subjective value theory. And you see sort of the labor or cost theory of, of value in his writings. Um, and I'm just wondering if you can speak to, you know, the history of economic thought uh, and, and what your take is on on how it's uh, whether or not my, my professor's point was sort of right that the, that school or, or part of the school of thought is falling away. I, I think that when we, we talk about sort of the classical economics and, and you know, economic thought and history, um, there are probably fewer people that are looking there, but there are certainly um, a lot of individuals that are still really interested in focusing on on some of those ideas and sharing those ideas. Um, I think one of the things that, that we find hard in, in today's world is that people tend to have a much shorter focus, a more shorter time frame that they're willing to focus on things. And if you actually read some of those classical uh, books, they, they're not easy to read. Um, so <laughs> perhaps what we need to be doing is really thinking about how we can bring those into a more contemporary language so that people can start listening and understanding. Um, one of the things I did find when I was uh, teaching is that students, if you can engage them with stories and, and ideas and things that are really applied to their life, they're going to they're gonna latch onto that much better and they're going to be able to use that in their life um, for a much longer period of time because it's going to stick with them a lot longer. And so maybe t- being able to take some of those ideas and those classical uh, pieces and bringing them into today's world and, and, and making sure that people understand their relevance. And I, I do think that's really important um, because we do learn from, from history and we need to make sure that, that we're paying attention to some of those mistakes that we've made in history. Um, and frankly, we're not very good at mm-hmm. that. It's funny, mm-hmm. yeah, because mm-hmm. applying it to a person's particular context is helpful as a teacher. And that was helpful for me uh, when, you know, I took my economics course and I was introduced to the work of Thomas Sowell. And so as a black male, for me, my experience was black people think a certain way and our narrative is a certain way. And and that's, and that's how it's going to be. And being introduced to Thomas Sowell and looking more at his work and his approach to black problems was something I never heard before. And it comes back to the point I was making previously um, that it wasn't a dismal science, but it was actually offering a hope 
and actual solutions to real world problems. And so for me, I was just like, okay, wow. Um, hmm. This is helpful in regards to, you know, when he was talking, whether he was talking about poverty or uh, minimum wage and, and so forth. And so it was very helpful. And, and of course, then, you know, that kind of being introduced to economics through this one person opens up doors to other people, uh, Milton Friedman, um, and, and, and so forth. So uh, the point I was making is just, yeah, it's, it's very important to make sure that we can uh, take the science and put it into a real world context where people can be like, okay, well, this hits home. This hits home for me. Absolutely. And when, when we talk Thomas Sewell and, and Milton Friedman, um, you know, who's, who's next? Those, those two and, and a handful of other folks. And Walter really Williams. Helped us Walter Williams share economic dope. ideas. Walter Williams, um, yeah, you know, we need more people that are articulate and able to have these conversations um, and able to just explain in, in simplicity or with simplicity how economics impacts our worlds and how important it is to understand that. Because there are so many pieces um, that people really don't understand and they, they think they understand them, but they really right. have not had the training to think about it from an economic way. And so that whole idea of um, the the economic way of thinking is, is just, it's so important for people to, to start to understand. And, and I mean, imagine what a world we would live in if, if more people were able to think that way and process ideas that way so that we could actually have some, some really good facts that, that sit behind our science and ideas that are really supported um, rather than just sort of these ideas that people share with each other without anybody ever really looking at the evidence and understanding what's really going on. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's, that's, that's really good. Uh, for, for our listener uh, who, you know, likes everything you've had to say, if they want to hear more from you, if they want to reach you, how, what, what would be a, a way for them to uh, get in contact with you or, and I'll, I'll put some stuff in the show notes page that I've got, you know, a couple podcasts that I found that you were on, Super. Uh, but, but for the listener, where can they, they contact you or, or find more of your stuff? Well, can certainly look at our, our website at uh, perk.org. Um, you can reach me at holly at perk.org. And we have um, a tweet at perk tweets. We have an Instagram at perk underscore conserves. Um, and it just don't hesitate to, to look us up, to, to dig into our website a little bit and to, to reach out with an email to me if you have, have questions. This has just been a, um, a, a wonderful um, evening chatting with you guys. And I, I hope we can continue oh, this conversation. Most definitely. Thank you for sharing your two cents with my two cents and Jill's two cents. Six cents makes change. But you heard me? Does that make sense?